0: If you had to
1: pick the most broken institution in Washington, which one would you choose? Would you pick Congress, where lawmakers grind out legislation, even when it's got zero chance of passing? Maybe you'd pick the courts, which after years of conservative activism have gotten philosophically warped. If I had to pick, I'd go way smaller. I'd pick the FEC. That's where Ellen Weintraub works. I was reading up on the history of your workplace, the Federal Election Commission, and as I did that, I kept seeing these two words come up, notoriously dysfunctional. (laughs) (laughs) You're laughing, but you've worked there for 20 years. Well, not quite. Not quite.
2: (laughs) Do you work at a notoriously dysfunctional workplace? Well, I suppose it is. I mean, if enough people say it, it must be true, right? That's the nature of being <laughs> notorious. Do you say it's true? Um, I, I wouldn't say notoriously. I would say unfortunately. Ellen's a commissioner at the FEC,
1: part of a six-person leadership team that is purposely split down the middle. Three Republicans, three Democrats. Ellen's a Democrat, by the way. The idea here is is that by keeping the commission in a 3-3 split and requiring four votes to get anything done, nonpartisan decision-making will follow. Instead, all the bickering you've gotten used to in Washington, it plays out in miniature at the FEC. During his term, President Trump simply refused to appoint commissioners. Eventually, that meant cases couldn't be closed. Fines weren't imposed. And that was in 2020, the most expensive election cycle
2: ever. The American people deserve better from uh, the only government agency with civil enforcement authority over the campaign finance laws.
1: Now, the commission is once again fully staffed. But that hasn't necessarily made things work better. Because according to Ellen, her Republican colleagues share a philosophical approach to their work. Their philosophy
2: is that the FEC should not exist. You can look at cases that involve uh, allegations against Democrats. You can look at allegations against Republicans. And regardless of who's being complained about, it's always the Democrats who are trying to enforce the law and the Republicans who are trying to block enforcement of the law. I regret that that has happened. It didn't used to be the case for most of the agency's history.
1: A lot of people would have stopped going into a notoriously dysfunctional workplace.
2: Why not you? I Because I think the mission of the agency is actually critically important, and somebody's got to be in there fighting for, for us to be doing the right thing.
1: But what if the right thing brings this agency to its knees? Today on the show, an FEC commissioner talks about her scheme to fix her notoriously dysfunctional agency by leaning in to its gridlock. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service Everyone has the option to talk to a real person, anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we get in too deep, some basics about the Federal Election Commission. This agency is tasked with the civil enforcement of election law, so it oversees the public financing system, candidates have to file quarterly reports on where their money is coming from, where it's going, and regular citizens can come to the FEC with complaints that a candidate is getting or spending money in ways that break the rules. Commissioners like Ellen decide which complaints get investigated and which entities get fined. The agency was created after Watergate. And from the start, everyone knew its work was inherently political. But Ellen says no one predicted her work would be quite
2: this difficult. I think when this agency was first established back in the 1970s, people were concerned that it would just be Democrats protecting Democrats and Republicans protecting Republicans, and that's why the agency wouldn't work. And that's where the gridlock would come from. But that isn't actually what has happened. It's not the way it has played out. And uh, unfortunately, campaign finance, like a lot of other topics in Washington, has become partisan, where one party has one philosophy on campaign finance regulation and the other party has a different philosophy. And it's, Yeah, the
1: Republicans are pro-money and the Democrats are pro-regulation, is my understanding.
2: Well, the Republicans believe that there should be very few, if any, limits on money and politics. And unfortunately, they're not even too wild about disclosure anymore. That used to be the part that everybody would agree on, that at least it ought to be out in the open. And Democrats believe that excessive funds in politics has the potential to corrupt the system and that some kind of reasonable regulation is necessary. This ends up benefiting
1: the side that does not want to take action, the Republicans. And even when the commission can agree to hold someone accountable, these partisan rifts open up. A good example of this is the Karen McDougal case. McDougal was a Playboy model who claimed she'd slept with Donald Trump. Back in 2016, she agreed to sell her story to American Media Incorporated, which owned a number of supermarket tabloids. But it turns out AMI was buying her silence to protect presidential candidate Trump. And that is a violation of campaign
2: finance law. The National Enquirer was involved. Um, their parent corporation, AMI, was ultimately held accountable. They they entered into a non-prosecution agreement with um, the federal government in which they uh, explained what happened under oath, and we were able to use that, which basically was an admission on their part that they had coordinated these payments with the Trump campaign and uh, they had made these payments to Karen McDougal in what's known as a catch and kill. And in that case, because somebody admitted that they violated the law, even my Republican colleagues were willing to go after the National Enquirer for that. And yet, when it came to the FEC, they, um, we were able to get the votes to go forward against AMI, but we were not able to get any votes to go forward against um, Trump or, the, or his campaign. It, it's beginning to look like, unless somebody comes in and actually confesses and admits that they broke the law, as AMI basically did, uh, that it's very hard to get four votes to move forward on, on anything. That seems like a real problem. Yes, I would agree with you. I believe it is a very serious problem. The standard for triggering an investigation uh, the legal language that is in the statute is that there has to be reason to believe that the law has been violated uh, or is about to be violated. And the republican commissioners over the last number of years this group of commissioners and the and the commissioners that came before them have been steadily raising the threshold on what it means to have reason to believe. A number of years ago there was a bipartisan agreement on, on the commission that what that standard really meant was that there has to be reason to investigate, that you didn't have to have conclusive proof that the law had already been invo- uh, violated in order to start an investigation, because otherwise, the entire structure doesn't make any sense. Congress gave us subpoena authority. Congress gave us resources to hire investigators and lawyers, and none of that would make any sense if we were never going to do any investigations and we were only going to uh, try and negotiate penalties after somebody else had done the investigation and we were presented with conclusive proof. But in case after case, I have seen my Republican colleagues say, well, I just don't believe it. I don't have conclusive evidence that the law was violated. And if I don't have that evidence in front of me already, how can I vote to start the investigation? It really,
1: you're caught there. Yes. If you can't find the evidence to get much further.
2: Yes, it's very, it's very frustrating. And um, it's, it's a, it's a It's a clever legal trick that they use to avoid starting investigations. So um, it it sometimes has felt like I'm on a commission with hear no evil, see no evil, and, and speak no evil because they just don't want to find the facts.
1: But here's the thing. Since it takes four votes to close a case, even if all the Republicans want to shut something down, they need at least one Democrat to go along with them. If you look at the case of Karen McDougal, you see how a Democratic commissioner has got some reason to play along with Republicans. After all, they were getting a $187,000 fine out of the National Enquirer. It's real money. But there are other cases where Ellen and her colleagues, they've just got less to lose, which has opened up a whole new strategy. As long as Ellen can convince the Democrats to hang together as a block they can keep the commission deadlocked.
2: And for Ellen, that comes with a benefit. There is a second way for the law to get enforced that is built into the statute. If somebody files a complaint, and anybody can file a complaint with the FEC, and they are not satisfied with what the commission has or hasn't done, uh, if we dismiss a case and they think that it was an arbitrary or and capricious decision, or if we just fail to act, then the complainant can file a suit in federal court against the agency. And under the statute, it requires four votes to defend that suit, to defend that, that litigation. To show up in court. To show up in court and explain what the agency did or didn't do and why. And I've just started not voting to defend that kind of litigation.
1: My understanding is that you, you, you're keeping cases open like that, too. So you know they're sort of on a simmer but no one really knows what's happening and there's no decision.
2: Right. Well that's that is another decision point. We have to agree at some point there has to be four votes to close the file before it can be made public before we can we have to agree to dismiss the case. And that requires people like me to say, okay, I thought we should have gone forward, but if you guys don't want to go forward, I'm going to just agree with you. I'm going to flip my position now. I'm just going to agree with you that I we should just dismiss this case. Sounds like you are sick of doing that. I am sick of doing that. You are entirely right, Mary. I am tired of voting to dismiss cases that I think we should pursue. And this strategy gives me a little bit of leverage. It makes my colleagues have to think at least if we don't work across the aisle and try and find some resolution that might get four votes, then we could run into a situation where we can't close the file. They just want to dismiss the case. They can't count on me and sometimes my colleagues to agree with them, okay, you don't want to go forward. We're just going to dismiss this case. And then if we get sued over it, either because we have delayed it too long or uh, because we have uh, dismissed it and people think that we shouldn't have, the complainant thinks we shouldn't have, we will not necessarily agree to defend their position. It's not my position that reco- that ends up getting defended in court. It's their decision, and it always works that way. I never get the benefit of this. It's not like, well, sometimes you agree to defend their decision and they, then other times they agree to defend your decision. My decisions aren't the subject of the lawsuits, ever, because they are always the ones who are blocking enforcement of the law. And they just expect that we're going to sit back and then say, oh, never mind. We thought we should have enforced the law, but we will now agree with you to dismiss the case. Or we thought we should have enforced the law, but now we will agree to defend the decision not to enforce the law in this case. And really Mary what's my motivation to do that why when i don't get cooperation on the other side to try and meet me halfway ever why, what is my motivation to then turn around and say okay i will agree to defend that so when we chatted back in 2019 you told me the story of how
1: the fec got here you talked about this moment in 2008 when a bunch of new commissioners were appointed all at once and the republicans decided they were going to vote as a block, and prevent a lot of things from being accomplished. One of those commissioners was Don McGahn, who later served as President Trump's attorney. I got to ask, what you're doing here, it seems like exactly the same thing that really frustrated you when the Republicans
2: did it a few years back. Do you see it that way? I I don't really. But it's, you know, at a certain point, you have to fight fire with fire. If nothing else works, if I cannot get people on the other side to say, you're right, we really ought to try and find four votes, as opposed to, hey, you know, if we can get three votes to block enforcement of the law, that's what we want to happen. So we're good. I have to use the the small amount of leverage that I've got, the tools that are available to me to try and get people to work across the aisle, to try and find that kind of consensus that I think the agency was designed for. Hmm. Because I think the agency was designed for compromise. Some people say we were designed to fail because of the three-three split in commissioners. By law, we have six commissioners, only three can be of any one political party. I think it was set up to compromise. But it was also set up with an acknowledgment by Congress that it might not work. And that's why they built in. This is everything I'm doing is completely consistent with the statute. They built in the requirement that it takes four votes to defend this kind of litigation. Your fellow commissioner, Trey Trainer, he said in an, inter-
1: in an interview that you were poisoning the well at the agency, or the Democrats were, not you specifically. He called the, I'm poisoning the well. <laughs> he called the tactic an abuse of the process. What would you say to that?
2: Well, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the, uh, the, the person who kills his parents pleading um, sympathy for being an orphan with the court. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, that's harsh.
2: Well, that that's harsh. I've been I've been told I'm abusing the process. I think that's also harsh. I am I am everything that I'm doing is completely consistent with the statute. The commission does not have to defend the litigation. It could, for example, Reexamine the decision that it made, and say, you know what, maybe maybe we need to go back to the drawing board and see if there's a better way forward here to avoid this litigation, rather than um, blindly defending every single time we get sued. So you see this now, as a if, failsafe. He sees it as an,
1: as yes. an abuse.
2: But it's written into the statute. How can it be an abuse of the statute if it's written into the statute? If they want four votes to defend the litigation, then maybe they should work harder to make sure that the original decisions that we are uh, subject to suit on have the backing of four commissioners. It's funny because you mentioned this failsafe, the fact that,
1: you know, The complainants can file lawsuits if they feel like the FEC has not adequately addressed their concerns. You mentioned it the last time we spoke. You said you often found yourself rooting against the FEC in court. And I heard that and I thought, I wonder how long she's been thinking about this plan.
2: Well, it's been percolating for a while. Um, But it's, you know, at a certain point, I just decided, well, it's nothing else is working. So let's try this. When we come back,
1: could other government agencies learn a lesson from what's happening at the FEC?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
1: One former Republican commissioner wrote an op-ed talking about this new strategy you have, complaining about it. And one of his <laughs> comments, which I thought was kind of interesting— was basically, why aren't you, Ellen Weintraub, giving these new guys on the commission a chance? You know, you're, you're complaining that there's Republican obstruction, but, you know, two-thirds of the GOP commissioners have served less than six months. The third's barely been there a year. So you barely know these guys. Why are you taking such a firm stance when they just got there?
2: Well, this only happens... When there's a 3 3 split. So I have that evidence in front of me. There are many, many cases. It's not like this is happening in every case. I am happy to work with my colleagues on as many cases as we can get the votes to work together on. And there are cases where we are, that we are pursuing. I'm not saying it's happening in every single case. In each decision point, at each decision point, I have the evidence in front of me that demonstrates that, at least in this case, They are not willing to work across the aisle. We are once again falling back into these same partisan split votes. And as I said, it's not partisan because they're defending Republicans and we're defending Democrats. They're blocking enforcement of law against Democrats and Republicans. And I am trying to get the law enforced against Democrats and Republicans if they are alleged to have violated the law. Do you think that an institution
1: built on the idea that there are three Republicans, three Democrats, this sort of traditional bipartisan idea. Do you think it can work in the same way that it worked 20 years ago, 40 years ago?
2: Or has something shifted there? Well, there's no question that everything has become more partisan in Washington, right? It's, it's not just us, but if you're going to see partisanship and polarization play out anywhere, it is absolutely going to be in an agency where you're evenly divided. So, uh, and that has, as you know, led to proposals that the entire structure of the agency needs to change because we can't get our job done in this 3-3 system. So I At think- At this point, what do you want to like burn it all down and like well, start over? I, I I certainly have a lot of sympathy with the people who want to do that. I understand their frustrations. Believe me, no one is more frustrated than I am about um, the inability of the FEC to be a real cop on the beat and to seriously enforce the law. But what I'm trying here is something short of burning the place down. What I'm trying is to use the leverage that I have available to me to try and reel it all back a little bit, to impose some costs on the other side where they think they always win. And um, I'm sure that they are frustrated to discover that, in fact, the system provides, you know, these small opportunities for those of us on the other side to actually exert a little bit of power in the system. They don't get to win every single time.
1: There's a question that's been on my mind, listening to you talk, which is, I wonder what you think when you look over at your colleagues in Congress, because there's been this vigorous debate about whether, especially in the Senate, they should play more political hardball, you know, nuke the filibuster, get the legislation through that they want. And I look at what you're doing and I think, Oh, Ellen's playing hardball. <laughs> and I kind of wonder if you look over and you get frustrated with your Democratic colleagues
2: in another branch and you're saying like, guys, this is what we have to do now. I wish hardball wasn't necessary for any of us. I, I wish that people could work across the aisle to try to come to consensus positions for the benefit of the American people, instead of everything being viewed through a partisan uh, or political lens, where, you know, it's it's more about what's going to advantage my party in the next election, rather than what's the best policies for the American people. And I don't think that it's my role to be giving advice to members of Congress. I am a humble commissioner. I'm just <laughs> a, a small cog in the government. And you know, they have to do what they think they need to do for the benefit of their constituents and the American people.
1: Well, you clearly believe in
2: bipartisanship, too. I do. I absolutely do.
1: That's what I'm trying to get back to. And so I, I kind of wonder if this has been a journey for you to get to this place where you realize that, oh, maybe getting to bipartisanship actually requires sharper elbows and whether you'd You'd sort of highlight that for others.
2: Well, uh, others are going to have to make their own decisions. But I do think that you do what you have to do, and um, after, and and believe me, I didn't come to some of these decisions, which are, um, let's say, creative. Um, I, I, I didn't start out this way, you know I didn't walk out and my first move out of the box was, hey, let's um, let's let's start taking some really innovative positions here that nobody's ever done before I, I, I got here after a long time of deep thought and uh, of watching what was happening in case after case after case. but I think that, it's incumbent upon me to use whatever tools I have at, uh, at my disposal. And there aren't a lot of them in order to try to provide incentives for the other side to uh, come back to the table and reach across the aisle and try and come up with a, a, a better solution. It's, it is very unfortunate in my view that campaign finance has become such a partisan issue that um, I feel sometimes like, People on the other side almost would view it as a betrayal of their party if they were to actually start voting in a way that that reasonably enforced the law, because their party doesn't believe in these laws. I look at the FEC over the last
1: 20 years, and to me, I wonder a little bit if it's a leading indicator where some of the dysfunction that I see in other places in government, it seems like You saw it at the FEC
2: first. Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. I absolutely agree with that, that we are the canary in the coal mine. If you are ever going to see anywhere um, partisanship play out, it's going to be at an agency which is divided three three. So what does that mean
1: about the future of all of these other places that are maybe lagging behind you but grappling with some of the same issues? Like, does it mean like buckle up, basically?
2: <laughs> well, I'm I'm worried about well, I'm worried about a lot of things these days. I'm I'm worried, writ large, about the state of our democracy and about um, people's losing their faith in the system. And I worry that we are barreling towards a place where nobody's going to trust the results if the other side wins. And democracy can't survive that way. So anywhere that we can exert a little bit of pressure to try to reel the system back to a place where people really do try to find common ground, I I think those, those steps have to be tried. Ellen Weintraub, thank you so much for joining me. Anytime, Mary, always a pleasure.
1: Ellen Weintraub is a commissioner at the Federal Election Commission. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, Davis Land, Daniel Hewitt, and Mary Wilson. We get help every day from Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. Stick around this feed tomorrow. Henry Gerbar will be here with What Next TBD. That is our Friday show. I'm Mary Harris. I'll catch you back in this feed on Monday.
0: Step into the world of power, loyalty,
3: Purchase necessary. VDW group, void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including and Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court Justice.